Welcome to Engineering Stories, a podcast presented and produced by Silver Fox and the Institute of Engineering and Technology. This week's guest is Simon Whitehouse, UK Certification Director for Ricardo Certification. Simon takes a trip down memory lane and reminisces on his time in the Royal Navy and discusses with Alex and Dom how he now encourages young people to join the engineering industry. So without further ado, let's get to it. Welcome to Engineering Stories. I'm Alex, the head of R&D here at Silver Fox. And with me today is my co-host. It's not Connor. Connor didn't make it. It's Dom. Dom, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, all. Um, filling in for Connor today. Maybe a permanent fixture. Depends how well I do. I am the head of major projects and partnerships here at Silver Fox, working alongside Alex. Um, I have a BSc from Royal Holloway University of London uh, and studying an MSc at the University of York currently. And with us today, we have Simon Whitehouse. Simon, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Simon. Um, I'm the UK Certification Director for Ricardo Certification, and I'm a fellow of the IET. Fantastic. Welcome. Welcome. So can you tell us a bit more about Ricardo? So Ricardo is an engineering consultancy. Um, Head office is in Shoreham, uh, and historically it is an automotive um, organization so it started off pre-first world war doing tractor engines and then it developed the diesel engine for the um, war department uh, during world war one because they were uh, sending plumes of smoke to the enemy saying this is where our tank is <laughs> and uh, they were getting involved. <laughs> and so they've done a lot about emission control all the way back then and actually really that's that's been a thread really uh, looking at uh, emissions, and then they've developed various um, um, diesel engines. I think they did, they developed the the land speed record engine for for diesel, and wow. also for those um, youngsters who know Guy Martin, who did a uh, Guy Martin, the the world's fastest oh, the... actor. Yeah. So Ricardo did work with Guy Martin's team and and developed the the fastest tractor. But they also, this guy Martin, the um, he was the cyc- the cyclist, motorcycle guy motorcycle, as well. Yeah. He's, he's yeah. the best motorcyclist who's never won um, the Isle of Man <laughs> TT, and he's also responsible for the fact is I never I cannot say I don't believe that that's unbelievable um, because Guy Martin said the only thing that's unbelievable is a man eating his own head. So I think that's really cool. Um, <laughs> that's such a good saying. Uh, so yeah, so uh, Guy Martin. But also they do, if you've got some money, they, they make the engines for McLaren cars. They do the drive, drive transmissions for Bugatti, so the Veyron and the Chiron, um, and, and they do a lot of other engineering work. But they've diversified over the last six or so years. So um, six years ago, they bought Lloyd's Register Rail, so Rail Consulting, which is now Ricardo Rail, which is the, the consulting side and the certification side, and I'm part of the certification side. Um, they've bought an energy and environment. So we're very much looking into um, engineering solutions to improve the environment. Um, and we've worked with uh, tra- Roscoe's like Porschebrook uh, on hybrid variants of train pro- propulsion. So uh, we, are, we are just not looking at diesel or diesel electric or battery. We are looking at hydrogen technology and how it can be applied in the rail environment so so guy so guy well, guy martin he he um 
he's been doing some various engineering challenges and one of them was to build uh, the, the fastest tractor and Ricardo um, did the engineering for the fastest tractor. JCB did the, the body, so it's very, it's not a Ricardo blue, but it's, it's a JCB yellow. Uh, and I think also JCB were behind, worked with uh, Ricardo doing the, far, the, the land speed record for a diesel engine. So, and the engineers in Shoreham did that. We also do battery technology. So the McLaren P1 hypercar um, is a hybrid mm. car. And they do yep. not only the engine, but they also the battery. And so the Cambridge technology site. So lots of good engineering thought has gone into it. Uh, yeah. Ricardo Rail um, is the, the rail side of you know, the, you know, Ricardo traditionally is automotive, but Ricardo Rail is on the rail side. Um, and certification, we're a glorified MOT garage, basically. We are appointed, <laughs> Don't we are, sell yourself short like that, Simon. Well, we, we are, we, we, we're appointed by the government to do what we do uh, and yep. certify evidence against, and we assess evidence against standards set by the government. Um, um, the car owner or network rail or whoever the rail operator is, they're our client. They, they come to us with their evidence. We assess it. And if it's compliant, we issue a certificate of compliance or a safety assessment report, which they then send to the regulator, the Office of Rail and Road. Um, and the regulator then says, yes, you can use that line of route or that piece of rolling stock and uh, carry on with your business. That's really interesting. Simon, given that you've mentioned it, um, as in the future of rail and and what Ricardo do. I watched a video today actually about Virgin Hyperloop. Mm. Is that really going to be the future of rail? <sighs> do you know what? I, I wouldn't, where we've come with flights and mobile technology and, and the internet, I wouldn't say no. Um, you know, being put in a tube and, and, and fired along, um, I think, there will be applications for it, as there is applications for high-speed rail. Um, but you've got to have the distance to be covered. You've got to have the... So, Hyperloop across a, 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 a desert, um, absolutely. Um, but going down leafy lanes where we are, probably not. Um, and I think the thing about, similarly for hydrogen propulsion, it, it takes... I'm led to believe three times the amount of electrical energy to create the hydrogen to propel, to propel a piece of rolling stock one kilometre than it does by just using the electricity to, to electrify the line. Yeah. And yeah. so I think it's, it's going to be very much horses for courses, Alex. And actually, there will be space for Hyperloop technology, uh, as there is for monorail and maglev and, and other technologies. Um, uh, and SpaceX, I mean, I don't see far enough in the future to say yes or no, but uh, it's an interesting one. I think, and again, uh, regenerative braking and um, flywheel technology that was developed for racing cars mm. is going to come into the rail environment or into mm. normal cars. And you use some of these really kind of left of centre kind of forward-looking ideas and, and, and research into new technologies 
and they then spawn stuff that does come into everyday life. So Hyperloop as it is, maybe not so much, but something that comes out of the research into Hyperloop most probably will. Interesting. Um, going, coming into you as, a, as an engineer, um, looking over, over your, your professional history, it's, it's, it's pretty diverse, but going back to the beginning, how did you how did you get into engineering in the first place? I can I can see a smile on your face now for those podcasters listening. Um, but how did you get into it in the first place, and what sort of pushed you in that direction? So, um, quite honestly, I was sixteen. I was at boarding school. I went home for a weekend, and the Daily Mail had a full page spread from the Royal Mail saying, um, "Doing it, joining the Royal Navy as an artificer apprentice." And I thought, myself, well, you know what? If I'm going to stay in school, why not be paid to do it? Mm. And Fair I, point. <laughs> I, I, and I was, I was already away from home, so I, was, I, I got on a bus in London and, and, and a few hours later I was in HMS Fiskard in Torpoint, um, which was the apprentice school at the time, and it had been there for 40-odd years. Um, and I've actually posted on LinkedIn a, a photograph um, of my new entry um, in 1981, September of 1981, and asking the question, uh, "Where are you now?" Um, but yes, that that really that really was it. Um, I, 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 I'd always I've always had an interest in how things work, you know, and how do they do that? And and years mm. ago, Itachi were as well or more better known for. You know, cassette recorders and radio cassettes and, and hi-fis at home and um, I think for the princely sum of about £50 my parents had given me a birthday and Christmas present of a radio cassette recorder built by Hitachi and um, mm. so I took it back to school in its box still smelling brand new and then within a week I had it in bits on the table in front of me <laughs> just and throwing it at the wall and then, and then thinking, oh, because uh, you could unscrew things those days, and you could yeah. take things yeah. apart. And um, yeah, the, take, the taking apart's the easy bit; it's the putting yeah. it back together that I find the problem. And 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 that was the that was the thing. I was saying, well, I'm going to have to take it back next week uh, when I go home again. I, I better put it back together. And I was, I'm, I'm in trouble. <laughs> so I, I put it back together, and it and actually uh, it all worked, and it it, it lasted very well. Um, Wonderful. But but I, I always started a bit of a habit there. I had one or two screws left over, so I thought, oh, oh, that, yeah, that, that, was that the start of value engineering? Um, that <laughs> pit, yeah, lean I, engineering, yeah. That fe- that feeling in your stomach. Oh no, hang on, is this going to work? I don't I don't know if you listened to our, our our first podcast that we had of engineering stories. We we were lucky enough to have um, Chief Petty Officer. Uh, Peter Spain uh, from the Royal Navy on um, and he he raised some interesting points when he was at school he, he talked about how he never he never fathomed the reason he went into the Navy is because he thought he was the only option for him um, he said he wanted to go into the um, into the army but he had hay fever so he you know it was a stop to that one pretty quick um, and um, the Navy seemed like a good option because there were no trees in the sea is what he said um, but he he saw the navy as like a the only option or the or the armed forces the only option for him and never even fathomed that he'd get a, a an undergrad and then a, a a masters and then look at doing a doctorate as well. Um, is that something that that was available to you 
when you were going in as an apprentice to do an, an undergrad and a master's and, and, and further education or was it specifically for um, just the, the ability to be in, in, the, in the Navy? No, so, so no, none of those opportunities were it. So when I joined the Navy, um, exceptionally bright people uh, did three A-levels, a but the standard mm. were two A-levels. And, and again, exceptionally bright people went to university. The vast majority didn't go to university. Most people got, if they stayed on for A-levels, did two A-levels. Um, yeah. And then they went into industry or into, into work. Um, so for me, it, I wasn't in the exceptionally bright bracket. Uh, and so I was only ever going to do two subjects at A-levels and I was most probably going to go um, into into industry uh, or into business or, or something and follow you know, the track uh, that lots of my elders had followed. Um, yeah. So an engineering qualification above or a degree was never really an option. And, and so therefore, mm. actually... Um, Going into going to join the forces now, or or even other people, they joined British Rail in those days, and there was a good apprentice scheme or engineering training scheme within the industry. Um, that was that was the option you had. Um, I think for me, you know, the Royal Navy. My father had been Merchant Navy, and mm-hmm. and. You know, so going to sea at some stage, and I don't thought about becoming a seaman officer with um, P&O at the time and had gone through and mm. was you know, being offered a role as a seaman officer. Um, but my, my own levels were all science-based, so physics. Um, I was strong in physics. I was you know, not bad at maths. I wasn't, fright- I wasn't brilliant at maths, but I wasn't frightened of maths. Um, yeah. So everything was kind of engineering bias really or, or how, and my interest so that really went into into it all the army I, I never we had a cadet force I never really liked the shirts they were all a bit itchy and scratchy and the idea of sleeping in a tent <laughs> uh, didn't really and, and they're the, the shouting out and I think the navy always seemed a bit more relaxed <laughs> how wrong can I be the, what I'm sensing here is that the army needs to work on their recruitment. So, so I'm reflecting on recruitment of the late 70s. And I think the Navy, I mean, I've just re- linked up with a chap uh, who I were in the Navy together. He's a rear admiral. He does the equality and diversity. Uh, and uh, he, he's done very well. And another colleague of mine um, joined the Navy three months after I did, and he left the Navy. Um, and I think we've got to reflect on the, the, the kind of, the era when I joined the Navy, and there were people who joined the Navy in the sixties, and the mentality of recruiting into the services of those days were, I think, greatly different to to where it is now. And I sit on the engineering directors forum for Network Rail, and you get some oh. senior guys there, and we all talk about it. And I said, well, you look at the recruitment campaign of Network Rail today. It's a grumpy old man. It's raining. It's dark. He's got grey hair and a beard. He's looking really less than happy, um, and he's saying, "I give up my Christmas and my evenings. They keep you. They train yeah. for you." And I'm thinking, that doesn't really inspire me. And so, what's he going to do to a sixteen-year-old? 
Whereas the, yeah. the the armed forces, I think they've got it pretty well spot on now. Yeah, that whole um, no, born in Durham, <laughs> made in the Royal Navy. Um, yeah, I, I actually really like that. I think that. Yeah, I, I like the um, I like the if you can fix a skateboard, you can fix a bike. If you can fix a bike, you can fix a car. And if you can fix a car, suddenly you're doing a fighter jet. But <laughs> it's quite a nice um, way of discussing the the progression that you would experience in the Royal Navy. And if you've got if you've got the inquisitiveness and the, and the raw ability, mm. then I think the armed forces can actually take you through that transition. Because I mean, yeah. my interest was taking bikes and uh, push bikes and Hitachi radio cassettes apart. But through the training, yeah. through the opportunities I was presented, my, my, you know, before I became a naval officer, um, I was I, I was working on satellite communications at the start of their application in military use afloat, and there've yeah. been several iterations on from there, and so therefore. Mm. You can you have that environment you can flourish within, but I think so. so I think that the armed forces now are very much there. But in, in, when I joined, though, it was kind of women didn't, didn't serve at sea. You know, it was punishable by imprisonment if you were homosexual. Um, it, you know, cigarette smoking wow. was almost obligatory, as was drinking to excess. Um, and, and actually, you just shut up and, and did as you were told. Um, whereas mm. now, I think you know, the Royal Navy and the other armed forces have, have quite rightly adapted. You know, people wanted more then, but they certainly want more now. And there's certainly more. We were questioning then, but we weren't allowed to speak then. But now youngsters are allowed to speak and, and they are very much engaging you know, a wide variety of, of, of people now to join and retain and recruit because... If you are wanting engineers or good people in your organisation, be you the Royal Navy, BAE Systems or Virgin Galactic Space Flight or whatever, um, you've got to be appealing to get them in through mm. the door and then you've got to be good at your job to keep them in. And, and you cannot be 1940s, 1950s mentality that I joined um, today. And Would you say that that challenge is something that's unique to the armed forces because i know you mentioned network rail earlier is that is that challenge of making engineering appealing as an industry is that something that the whole industry is facing or is it just a no, no absolutely i think it, it, it is very much the whole industry i think um mm. the royal navy and the armed forces now are just one organization operating in the engineering space um i think maybe it's my age i think still there's too many youngsters who aren't inquisitive enough and and don't want to know how things work and therefore how can they get involved they all want to be pop stars or footballers earning kind of you know huge salaries <laughs> we just need to engage youngsters how does it work you know pull this lever where does that go where's that flag go? Mm. If you do this, if you tweak this valve, what's the performance of the engine? If you, yeah. you put yourself in a position of danger, you are going to be electrocuted and you might get killed. So you've got to do things properly. <laughs> um, but I think there's a lot more of, of, of interest going on within engineering as an industry that we need to get out there and enthuse youngsters who... 
secretly are taking apart mm. their iPods or their, their mobile phones and going, oops, if, I, if mum and dad find out I'm in deep trouble, um, mm. I'm to try and put it back together again. And, and I think it's all good stuff, but it, we just need to be more enthusiastic about engaging with youngsters. Yeah, so for sure. Where, where do you think the responsibility lies for engaging with youngsters then? Is it with employers? Is it with schools, universities, parents? Oh, I mean, that's a, that's a good one, really. I think um, parents, not so much, really. I think um, because, I, well, parents in a, in a way is that they should allow a bit more freedom of thought and, and less controlling you know, thought um, than, than maybe I had. I mean, I was sent, okay, I was sent away to school and what I got on with and got up to was my own, and I was work, I was with other like-minded youngsters, and so therefore, what we got away with maybe was a little bit more um, than than youngsters today. I don't know, um, but I think promoting engineering at primary schools at the youngest age and actually getting people enthused about it is very much part of the education system. And I think organisations like Ricardo, Network Rail, we have STEM ambassadors in Ricardo and they go on school visits and school trips and they, they try and enthuse youngsters. But they, they, it's, good. It's, it's for many good reasons, it's highly controlled. Uh, it's, they've got to be vetted and we've got to make sure that it's delivered appropriately. Um, but I think industry... If, if, if Ricardo had the opportunity with McLaren's support to take an F1 car or a, or a McLaren road car into a, into a schoolyard and said, right, who likes this car? Who wants one of these cars? Or who wants to work on one of these cars? You'll get all the hands going up. And if you've got, yeah. if you've got a youngster from the, 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 from the, the, the engine building team at Shoreham for Ricardo or the battery they're making team in, in Cambridge with the you know, McLaren engineers you know, all very smart all very clean and tidy all very professional and knowledgeable showing youngsters about the engines and the components and other bits and pieces you get a whole lot of it'd be a great recruitment drive because you get a whole lot of youngsters yeah. saying I want a piece of that and actually, if you then roll it back and say, well, to do this, uh, you need to do this sort of subject in school. You need to you know, get this sort of grade um, in, your, in your education. Um, I think you'll get a lot more focus on, on, on some youngsters. Why wouldn't people want to go into engineering? I just don't know. <laughs> do you think one of the reasons we've struggled so much is one, the delay, if you're trying to influence primary school children? the earliest you're going to get them into the workforce is probably 10 years later. I don't know. Do you think we've left it too long or do you think we just haven't seen the, the, the fruits and they're already happening? I think leaving it too long suggests that we're, we're, we're doomed um, and we might as well draw up the, you know, pull up the drawbridge <laughs> and, and walk away. So I don't think we've left it too long. And I think you know, there's lots of people who, who are doing it and actually the gestation period between what has been put in place 10, 15 years ago is still working its way through because 
when 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 you start something like that, you're not going to get an upturn um, for a number of years um, of people actually thinking, oh, do you know what? I'm going to go into engineering. Um, and I think so. So there's there's that. There's also the, the kind of the political environment you're operating in. So if people can go into other occupations, um, they might not consider engineering, and so therefore. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so when, when other occupations are drying up, uh, and then they start looking around as to you know what they want to do, you know, girls generally you know, mature mentally at an earlier age than blokes. I don't know. Um, so mm. they make a decision as to what they want to do um, earlier. There are some very focused young young male uh, students who who know, that's what I want to do. I want to be a I want to be an astrophysicist, and and everything they do is 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 around that from an early age. But a lot of people, um, the majority, I would suggest, mature later and at a different and much de- uh, different stages in their in their growing up. Uh, and it's only then when you suddenly the the, the things click into into place as to you know what I want to be. I can't say that in 1981, well, in, in, in the kind of end of 1980, uh, the early 1981, I thought, I want to be an engineer. Maybe I even, mm. hadn't even thought about it. Uh, and, and actually, for a number of years, maybe when I was in the Navy doing my apprenticeship, I didn't consider myself being an engineer. Um, mm. so therefore, it's only certain events in your life and, and certain corners you turn, you kind of, oh, a new perspective opens up and you... You end up going down that, and then when you look back and say, "Oh, I'm an engineer now," and I'm being interviewed as a, you know, a fellow of engineering, and you think, "Well, maybe I am. I am an engineer, but I don't." It's it's taken quite a while to kind of get to that thought for it to set in, and you go, "Actually, I've." I think that's been a bit of a trend in these podcasts, and actually, in some cases, some people have found it quite cathartic when we start talking to them about everything they've achieved in their life and asking them questions about engineering and, and what their perspectives are on it. And they go, oh, I yeah, I'm an engineer, actually. Yeah, I suppose. Um, and then they get to give their opinions and, and look back on what what they've done and the illustrious careers they've had and, and, and everything else. This podcast is sponsored by Silver Fox, the producers of the Fox Flow cable label. This low smoke zero halogen label has been tested to the highest specifications to ensure its durability and reliability in a range of different environments. To find out more or discuss a particular project, contact sales at silverfox.co.uk or call them on plus four four oh one seven oh seven three seven three seven two seven. I did have a question on um, role models because we, we obviously talked about STEM and everything else and how cool it would be for uh, McLaren P1 to rock up at your playground and and, uh, and have a for, for the kids to have a look in it. Do you think there's an uh, enough? I mean, I, I see it all the time on LinkedIn of people promoting STEM work, the STEM work that they're doing. But do you think there's enough role models? And, and who was your role model growing up to encourage you to go into the Navy? So um, really, I, 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 I was talking to a colleague about that this morning and, and looking through. No, I didn't have a role model. I, I think I, I went, and, <laughs> I, I joined the Navy for completely non-engineering reasons, actually. Um, I, 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 I almost ran away to the circus, basically. I think I'd had, had enough of, of, of um, being at school and, and having pop mm. 
pocket money given to me um, rather than actually earning my money. Earning it yourself. This is cracking, you know. I'm, I'm still at school, basically, and um, but I'm being paid. And I, Yes, I'm being paid. Yeah. And my first um, fortnightly pay packet, I think it was £25. And um, it went a long way. <laughs> but it, it, so, I, <laughs> so I think... Um, there aren't enough. There aren't enough role models. Um, there aren't enough Tim Peaks. Um, you know, to, you know, for, yeah. for youngsters who want to be an astronaut, or Helen Sharman. Let's not forget the first British astronaut was a was a lady called Helen Sharman, I believe. So uh, there aren't enough of Tim Peaks and Helen Sharmans. Um, there aren't enough. Um, I mean, there's a lady who, who in Network Rail, who I've got great admiration for, uh, Jane Austen, uh, I N not E N, not the writer. She's the <laughs> she, she's the the director of asset uh, engineering and asset management for for the Wales and West region in wow. Network Rail. Incredibly talented engineer. One thing I have realised as I've got older, is you're never too old to learn a lesson. And, and the person teaching you that lesson can be at any age. So yeah. it, it, some of the, some lessons I've learned from people you know, you know, quite a few years younger than me, um, and mm. some have been older. Um, so, so don't shut yourself off to who teaches you a lesson. Yeah, I think that's, that's what... What's interesting about engineering is the fact that there's so many different specialisms and someone could be 20 years your junior and but have been specialising in their area of engineering for 10 years in an area that you didn't know anything about. And then for all intents and purposes, they're, they're, they're your senior in that aspect of engineering. And what's nice about engineering is that everyone, in my opinion, takes notice of that and age is just a number. And if they've got the credentials, they've got the credentials and, and people listen. But I don't think that is why I don't think that is 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 advertised or publicised or, or shared enough. No, and I think I think um, in, in the armed forces particularly, but maybe in industry as well. You know, within the Royal Navy, um, the relationship between juniors and senior ranks, junior ranks and senior ranks in engineering in the military is far closer, and 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 you are engineers first almost uh, before mm. you're, you're, you're a junior sailor or, or, or a kind of a senior admiral or whatever um, it, it, the bond is closer um, compared yeah. to being a warfare officer uh, fighting the ship you know, using the ship as a, as a, as a method to, to win a battle uh, and I think engineering brings that closeness together far more than a non-engineering discipline and, and therefore, if you are good enough in industry, no, your age doesn't really matter. If you're, if you're good enough, you're old enough. But it really mm. resonates with me in engineering. If, if you've got a talent, a bent um, in engineering and certain discipline or the way you apply your knowledge, um, it doesn't really matter what age you are. You, you, your, your voice, I believe, is heard and it is, and, mm. it, and that's one huge, um, huge development in the military today than it was when I uh, was working um, in the, in the Gulf in, in 1987. I mean, I, I was a specialist engineer. I gave my I'm captain of the ship 
um, a briefing about something and he called my boss in and my boss said because he just didn't believe me and my boss <laughs> he just said so what part of his explanation did you not understand <laughs> and and um, and the captain never questioned me after that never questioned yeah. me is that, that is is that your favorite memory in the navy uh, well, that's a moment in time but I, I've got here my favorite was the camaraderie, the teamwork, and just getting the job done. Really, you, know, mm. you were faced with a situation; uh, it needed to be resolved, it needed to be fixed. You know, nobody was dancing on ceremony, you know, standing on ceremony, just getting you know, sleeves up, getting stuck in, and getting it fixed. Yeah. In episode one, we spoke to Chief Petty Officer Pete Spain. He said that, that when you're on a ship. Sometimes you do have to pull together some questionable um, engineering feats. I think he said he took took apart some toasters to fix something else. Have you got any of those? I, I think he's absolutely right. Uh, no, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. The jury rig. If 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 you don't have this, no, at the end of the day, um, if you're stuck in the ocean. You've got no chance of, of spare the correct spare part getting to you, and the ship is sinking. No, you you will jury rig something, limp into port, or get the job done, um, and then ahead of you, you've you radioed ahead and you've ordered the spare parts. So, a temporary repair is an, is is absolutely the right option using what materials you've got um, to get the job done. Uh, you've all seen it on the movies where you know, someone says, turn away, and the young lady you know, takes her bra off and says, will this do? Uh, and <laughs> and you, you, you've got Is yourself... Carry on, carry on camping, I think it was. Well, you know, what, you've, what you've got, you've got a, a, the fan belt, haven't you? And you, yeah. you've, got, you've got it, you've got the fan belt replaced... And it will get you to where you need to go, and you're out of danger. The ship's no longer sinking, uh, and then the then and then the real part comes in, and you make the proper repair. So, absolutely, uh, and being able to think on your feet and not go throw your hands up in horror, go, "Oh my God, we're all going to die." Um, that's not what you want. You need somebody a clear thought saying, "Well, actually, you know, that nail in that fuse holder." will do the job on a temporary basis as long as we keep the loading down below 10 amps until we get in, until we get the proper fuse to go in the proper breaker. Because actually, ideally, if you've got the proper fuse and a nail, a 10-inch nail or whatever, you will put the proper fuse in rather than use the nail. Um, because obviously it's a fire hazard and it could cause you know, untold damage elsewhere. But if you, mm. where the needs must, the devil drives, you get the job done, you do it knowingly, um, and you do it knowing that you've got the right parts you know, coming mm. along soon after. Other than the fact that you're on a ship, what's been the, your biggest difference, or you found the biggest difference being in the Navy um, to, to your office jobs? I'll call them office jobs. Well, but so um, you can't go home at night. <laughs> and, and and actually, you you, you kind of um, we go to bed at night on a on a warship. Uh, you learn to sleep with with a lot of noise, 
And so therefore, when you come, come ashore and you come home, um, you, you can't sleep because the silence is deafening. And that, that, <laughs> that really is, that really mm. is, you kind of, um, there's that, um, you, know, you, you get used to you know, broadcasts, uh, something, you know, noises. I mean, the, the biggest fear on board a ship, I'd suggest, are kind of fires and floods, really. That can really spoil your day. Um, and the, the, the standard operating process on board a warship is that as soon as there's a fire or a flood, then in the main machinery room, they crash stop ventilation. And now it's that ventilation that's you know, creating that background noise all day, every day. Um, mm. And then they stop that ventilation, that noise disappears and it goes silent. And you can be, you can be in deep sleep but that loss of noise wakes you up. That's the big difference. We, we've talked a, a, a lot about the Navy, but just going back onto your, your, your uh, role at Ricardo, can, can you tell us more about the relationships that you have with and what it's like working with massive companies like Network Rail uh, and London Underground? So you don't work with Network Rail as a whole. I mean, Network Rail's got five different routes, five different managing directors running those routes. They've got a manager. Mm chief exec they're all looking ahead to becoming part of great british railways um so when you do a project you are still only working with uh, a, a project team so you might be working with a, a with the region so wales and west and within that you are mm. working with a project team and they are charged and challenged to deliver their project and their their area of responsibility so they just need to get something designed, built, commissioned, and into service. They need to have the change approved. They need to have the regulator approve it. Um, and they're working on timelines, um, sometimes completely unrealistic, in my opinion. Um, sometimes um, they are working within windows of engineering opportunity that are presented to them outside of the timetable. So. If they if they encroach, they, they go outside of those, and they they annoy a lot of fair paying passengers, saying, "I've got paid, I've paid for this t- season, mm. I can't run, I can't use the train because they've closed my station, or they've they've ripped the rails up, and the trains aren't, aren't stopping anymore. They, they're going somewhere else. So they've got a whole load of of different presses, pressures. Um, so they're our client, though London Underground are our client. Um, but, London, but Network Rail and London Underground have more often than not more challenging clients and, and that is um, the fair paying passenger, so the rail, yeah. the rail user. Um, so, if a, if a, so that's one thing I think the pandemic has allowed Network Rail in particular because the ridership was tanked. Um, they've said, well, what we can do instead of doing consecutive weekend work, we're going to take this line of route for you know, 10 days or however long, which yeah. total is, is less time um, that, than they would ordinarily had. I mean, if I'm doing decorating at home and I've got to clear the dining room or clear the, the lounge, uh, just imagine if, 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 you, you know, if, if I would clear it and it would be cleared until um, I've got it all put back together again and I've got my wife kind of going on, have you finished it? Have you finished it? <laughs> but just imagine if I cleared mm. it, prepped it all, 
and then did some painting and then put it all back together again because the following day she had the knitting group or whatever around and they wanted to use that yeah. room. And, and so you just break it down engineeringly and say, well, to do a room is five days in total. But if I was to do it over the, the time I've got available at a weekend, all of a sudden it's taking you a month to do the, that one room. Well, yeah, yeah. That's, that's the time you've got available. And so therefore... As a supplier, uh, uh, being a you know, network rail or London Underground, being our client, um, we've got to understand the, the constraints and pressures they're under. Um, yeah. So, so again, when we we are we're asked to assess evidence, um, fundamentals are: when do you want us to start? When do you want us to finish? And, and the when is when you want us to finish is is when do you want your document to go to the regulator? Uh, and then the regulator's got to have their time to review the documentation, mm. and then the regulator will respond saying you can use it. So if you're planning on having this engineering in pl- change in place for passengers to use it on the 1st of September, and the regulator wants a month to review the documentation, don't tell us that um, your, your end date is the 1st of September, your end date has got to be the 4th of August. And so, therefore, you've got to sit down with them. Um, and so, therefore, again, with, with, with all our clients, be it Network Rail or, or London Underground, or with you know, VTG, other Freightliner, GBRF, and other clients, it's a case of understanding the pressures they're under, um, but also understanding what they're trying to achieve because sometimes a client, it, might be within network rail, but it might be in London Underground. It might be you know, a, a, a Siemens or Hitachi as, a, as an equipment supplier. They don't really know their, the process that we have to go through to get their, their product or their line of route or their service approved by the regulators so they can actually use it. Mm. Uh, and, and, and so therefore, really... We, we've got to be, we have to be an, um, independent and we have to maintain our independence. Um, otherwise, we get our accreditation removed. But unless we really understand what potential pains and pitfalls the client's going to go through, um, we can't help them as, as much as we want. And then therefore, that, get, that can then cause frustration. So, no, network rail... Yes, it's a huge client, um, it, it, uh, but Crossrail is a bigger client to me, um, and I've been involved mm. in Crossrail um, in one guise or another since um, 2009. Um, wow. Uh, and, and so therefore, they're not the only clients I've got, but, but any piece of work comes to me from Network Rail. It's not from the, the massive billion-pound organisation. It's from a project team trying to get mm. their project completed. And I've got to understand and, and look at them individually and make sure that we support them appropriately. So, I mean, you've worked with lots of big companies and you've, you, you entered into Ricardo as an experienced hire, I think it's fair to say. But do, what do Ricardo do about the young people, the people who we hope are listening to this podcast? Do they offer apprenticeships? How do, how do how can people join Ricardo? 
So the, so the answer is yes to apprenticeships. And we also take on um, graduates um, that have qualified, recently qualified. And I also um, they take on graduates who have got the, the gumption to say, I've missed the boat to join the graduate training program, but have you got anything for me as I'm you know, starting my MSc in computational fluid dynamics? Uh, well, he, did, he did that in his first degree and he was doing something else, you know, taking it on at, um, uh, for his master's. So, but what happened with that chap, He, I got a phone call from our HR partner saying, I've had a speculative phone call and email from this graduate, mechanical engineering um, graduate, um, he's just about to start his master's, but he's wondering if you know, he could do you know, work for us you know, for a couple of days a week. And I happened to be in our Derby office at the time, and I said, look, I'm not here. You know, I go go tomorrow, um, and then I don't know when I'm coming back. If he wants to meet me, it's five o'clock in this bar, or it's not. And, and so he, so he, you know, he scuttled along, um, and we met about six o'clock and I had my, a, a colleague of mine, another business manager. So he was meeting you know, two senior people in Ricardo Rail. Um, and within a kind of very you know, few moments few, my colleague looked at me and said, yeah, absolutely, bring him on. Uh, so mm. we, we gave him a, a contract for two days a week uh, whilst he was doing his masters because that's only the only time he had available actually. Um, and then at the end of his master's, um, we had seen enough where we offered him a full-time contract. Um, so he's, he's done that. Um, and then a year or so later, um, we, we brought him up to the level that he would have done, would have been at, had he been a master's graduate uh, joining the graduate training scheme. Uh, and then at the end of that, they get promoted to consultant um, and they get pay rise and, and they get a you know, payment for recognition of the masters as well. So I th I'd like to think he's, he's, he's done very well out of having the gumption and, and the kind of the tenacity to actually get out there and engage with, 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 with us. Um, yeah. But on the other side of things, we are, we are taking, we do take on uh, apprentices and it's all through the Ricardo website. Um, I do have colleagues who I approve to go and act as STEM ambassadors. So they go to um, colleges and schools to promote engineering. Uh, and by, they, they, first and foremost, they're promoting um, engineering. They're not promoting Ricardo. Um, if they then approach Ricardo through the website or to our HR partner to be considered for a role within Ricardo, then, then they, they they can do that, and, and we do we do look at those applicants, um, but we do try and engage, and feed into um, schools and colleges about a career in engineering. Brilliant! So it doesn't it doesn't matter what stage of your career, it, Ricardo can help by the sounds of it. Well, absolutely, and I, and I think what 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 really not surprised me, but really pleased me about the youngster who was just about just did his first degree and he, he I think he had a moment he was busy kind of playing rugby at university and he uh, and he just didn't think about applying and I think the message to youngsters who might think oh I've missed the boat um, don't give up 
uh, he didn't, and, and he's now got a full-time job, and we've actually placed him, he, he's actually now working for Irish Rail, well, for us, but on a project in, in, in the Republic of Ireland. Um, mm. doing engineering and he's actually he's not he's a mechanical engineering graduate uh, but the work he's doing is not mechanical engineering it's engineering but it's it's not it's not mechanical engineering but he didn't give up he went oh sh- shoot I, I've missed the application date and Ricardo are not the only organisation that you know, we are required to put applications closed by you know, on the advert but we're not the only ones who who mm would keep the door open for the right person. Mm. Well, I was just about to ask you, what's one takeaway that you want our audience to, to, to take from this podcast? But I think that's probably it. Don't, Don't give, up. give up. Don't give up. Don't give up. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the, the only other one I'd like to um, to share is, is, is a direct kind of response to an experience... Um, suffered or uh, well, experience of mine of a nephew i've got a couple of nephews and uh, and i've got a, a nephew who is not gregarious he's not outgoing he's a, no, he's very comfortable in his own skin and he's very social amongst his core friend group and whatever but he's not no, no flash heart or whatever he loves our engineering and he loves engines and cars and other tinkering and other bits and pieces and he got a he got an internship with a, a specialist car company um, just north of Shoreham, actually, um, and I and, and I'd also got him uh, a, a friend of mine, obviously the chief engineer for the automotive industry in, in Shoreham. So he went there for a, a half day, kind of look around, looking where the engines are, and he he was absolutely kind of focused on on doing engineering, and. Then, then we met up for a family art event, and he was a bit down in the dumps. And it, it, you know, my sister-in-law said, "Could you have a chat with with with, with your nephew?" And I said, "Well, why is that?" He said, "Well, you're in engineering, and he really wants." I said, "Well, he wants to go into engineering." I said, "Yes." He said, um, "But at school, he'd been told well, engineering's not for you." And I went, mm. "Pardon?" And he said, "Well, he's been told that he's not very good at mathematics." Hmm. And I went, oh, for goodness sakes. And I, a few beep, beep, beeps came out. And I said, yes, of course I'll have a chat with him. Um, and the takeaway really is some of the best engineers I know and have come across have been, quite frankly, the worst mathematicians I've ever met. <laughs> you do not have to be very good at mathematics to be a good engineer. You, I would, I would like to think you shouldn't be put off or intimidated by mathematics because there is something let's not get away from it there is mathematics and engineering but you do not have to be brilliant or very good fantastic however we want to couch it at mathematics and i think if schools are telling youngsters who've got that interest in engineering or they've got that engineering bent or that brain they're not an art student they're an engineer um that you've got to be very good at mathematics, otherwise engineering is not for you, then they're failing engineering uh, as an industry. Uh, and I'd say to all those youngsters, as long as you're not put off by mathematics, as long as you're not kind of, oh my God, it's maths, um, you don't have to be fantastic at maths. You might not even have to you know, do maths as an A-level or a degree course. Um, 
you just have to be fundamentally you've got to be inquisitive about engineering and what makes things work now why does that happen or it might be a piece of code on software engineering you go if i put this code in now that light lights rather than that light now why is that it just have that quizzical intellect that's what you need more than anything you don't need to be mm. good at maths mm. brilliant well i think that's a good a good note to end on so i'd like to say thank you simon for your time and your insight thank you simon yeah i think it's been re- re- really interesting um as obviously you're the you're the second member from the the navy that we've had on the podcast but it's interesting how you've both gone completely different ways in your career and it's a bit of a testament to to engineering as a as a whole that you can start in one place and end in a completely different one. And when you look back, you're like, oh my God, I've, I've gone this way and I've gone that way. But engineering as a discipline, as we are trying to promote, is all welcoming. And you don't need to be good at maths. You don't need to be good at physics. You just have to have that desire to know how the hell does this work and how can I fix it? Um, so I think you've really epitomized that in, in this podcast for sure. Excellent. Thank you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Well, thank you for inviting me, and I've I've thoroughly enjoyed the process. Thank you. Is this is this your first podcast? It is. Yes, so I'm open to bookings. <laughs> <laughs> well, if your phone starts ringing off the hook and you get loads of LinkedIn messages, I can say you've gone viral. Um, and um, no, it's uh, it's it's really it's really great um, for for us to have such high, um, accomplished engineers want to. To, to tell their story is, is amazing obviously we get a lot of knockbacks and people are far too busy but i think it's when people start saying that they're too busy is when we start getting into trouble and and, and experiencing the problems that we talked about in the well, I, 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 there's the other saying kind of the engineering in the rail industry is too male too pale and too stale unfortunately you know, <laughs> too, too many times you go, you go into a meeting room and it's it's all blokes they're all gray uh, they're all over 50 by some margin and you look around and think yeah. surely there's some good engineers younger than us that should be here uh, and, and yeah. there are the answer is that they, they are there uh, but they're just not attending and, and I think you know, it's incumbent on me uh, and others uh, as I, I was thinking well where do I want to be you go to kind of you go to the directors meetings where do you want to be in the next five years actually I want to be in the garden just looking after my my shrubs and thinking <laughs> that I'm, I'm retired. And so if, if anyone's got that thought, they need to start thinking, well, who's going to replace you? And, and, yeah, uh, sure. and, and if we don't do more um, to, to energise and enthuse the youngsters, and I, and I mean, you know, as young as you want to go, kind of try and get them really interested in engineering, then we're, we're going to be hugely kind of a huge problem um in in five or so years because there won't be people following on uh, and we will be you know, what do we do it'd be oh the ship's sinking and we've got no one to fix it yeah. mm. Mm. contingency plans probably need to go into place now and then uh, go from there well as i say thank you very much for joining us simon my pleasure thanks for listening to this episode of the engineering stories podcast We hope it's given you some insight into another area of engineering. If you're still here at this point, we must be doing something right. So stay tuned for the next guest. And in the meantime, share this episode with your friends and family. And don't forget to subscribe.